0: Good morning. All right, I'll make sure all you are out there. Kiddos, off you go. You go back to the rear to be disciple to know Christ, to love Christ, to disciple, to be discipled in Christ. That's what they do every week. Workers, thank you for what you do. It's important. It's critical. Um, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. Uh, my voice has been trailing for three days, so we're going to pray that I can make it through this sermon. So if it trails off at the end and I'm gasping for air. Uh, no, to pray for me, and uh, maybe it'll come out. Let's pray now. Father, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you first loved us while we were yet enemies. Uh, Lord, you are a good and a faithful God, and so we pray as you have spoken in times past, Lord, that you would speak to us today. May we be ready to receive your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, there are a few things in my life that I struggle with outside of my voice. Uh, these are things that are much more acute, more difficult for me. Um, since the death of my dad when I was 22, I've, I struggle with, the fear, uh, with fear in general from time to time. Uh, nostalgia can be harmful for me uh, in terms of fighting against sin and things of the like. Um, Self, using my time selfishly. You heard uh, Berkeley pray for that a moment ago. That can be difficult for me. I struggle with that. Something I have to fight against. And one of the other things, a more recent thing that I found in my life that I need to fight against. uh, Last year, this really came to fruition. The Lord led it to me, is to see I need to fight cynicism. Cynicism is defined as believing that people only act in self-interest. So the cynic sees the old lady or sees the young man help the old lady across the street. And the cynic says, well, he's doing it to impress his girlfriend, to get money, to uh, to earn some good points with God, something like that. That's what the cynic would say. But basically, cynicism is an inclination to believe the worst about people. Sometimes cynics call themselves realists, just try to get around it. It's a form of doubt, a form of unbelief. It's a kind of uh, settled pessimism that majors on tearing people down. And quite frankly, it's unattractive. It's not becoming of anyone, but it's especially not becoming of those of us that are in Christ. And so last year, as a result, I've committed myself. I lose a lot of battles, but I committed myself to warring against cynicism. In an age that encourages a great deal of cynicism, I think all of us, I think, could war against cynicism. And so this morning, we're going to get some help. We're going to. Uh, see how we can healthily, in a healthy way confront cynicism and hopelessness and our small-mindedness as Christians as we continue on our series through Zechariah. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 4, working through to chapter 6. So let me encourage you to go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Zechariah 4 to 6. Now, as a brief reminder, Zechariah is an Old Testament post-exilic prophet. Old Testament meaning he's preaching, his ministry is happening before the coming of Christ. Uh, Post exilic, meaning after the exile, uh, which uh, Israel had been disobedient, maybe exile from the land for 70 years. So after the exile and third, he's a minor prophet, meaning his ministry is not as large as, say, the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And so that's that's Zechariah's ministry. In short, he joins Haggai, another minor prophet, post exilic prophet, in calling God's recently returned exiles away from the comfort of building their own homes and to the rebuilding of the temple. Now the temple was the representative was the place in which God was to be dwelling with his people. And so the book, or we might call it the chapter of Zechariah, is made up of a good bit of something called apocalyptic literature. Again, just trying to orient us to this book. Apocalyptic historically means the telling of future destruction, but we should also add to that the telling of future restoration. That's what apocalyptic literature does. It's full of strange visions. We'll see plenty of them today not unlike many of the movies that we watch today and so from chapters one to six zechariah sees eight visions i've included a picture of how these visions kind of work together so you're going to get two pictures today we we haven't done this in forever wow we're going to see pictures in the sermon this is amazing we're really updating things Uh, but this helps us see i think it's helpful to kind of because these are difficult books to understand so they help us understand how these visions work together uh, so we've already seen four of those visions, those first four visions in chapters one to three. You recall that the first of those visions was of the angels patrolling the earth and finding that the earth was at ease about the plight or the destruction of God's people. They were sort of fine with it all. And that angered the Lord. That was the first vision. Second vision was God promising to send four craftsmen to bring destruction to those people that cared little for God's people. The third vision was that of the new Jerusalem that could not be measured, that had so many people in it from the nations there that where God would then dwell inside of it and then protect them around. And the fourth vision was last week, chapter 3, was of Joshua, the high priest who was accused by Satan. Uh, He had filthy garments representing his sin, but a servant of the Lord named Branch would come and give Joshua, he would sort of be a new Joshua, he would be given clean clothes, he would in fact take sinfulness away in one day. And all of this is pointing to the ministry of Christ who, who is the branch. We'll think about it more this morning. Christ, the branch that is going to separate good and evil. He's going to quiet the accusations of Satan. He defeats sin in the cross and in the resurrection. He gives clean clothes and the New Jerusalem to all that would repent and believe as well as judging the earth for not trusting Him and just being at ease about it all. That's what's happening. And that leads us then to the final four visions of this book, uh, at least this portion of the book. Now, they will be similar themes. You're going to notice as we work through them, they'll be very similar to what we have seen. But before we dive into those visions, allow me to read one verse to kind of orient us to this passage in Zechariah. See, I think many people read the Old Testament, much like you sort of read uh, the Washington Post. You, you think Zechariah and books like Zechariah is just this sort of uh, embedded journalist that's just telling you what's happening for Jews and it's for Jews. Much like Washington Bows is sort of telling us what's going on here in Washington, D.C. for today. But guys, that's not how the, God would have us to read the Old Testament. Not at all. Uh, the Old Testament is Christian scripture that was written for the church of Christ. It's important to understand that Old Testament is Christian scripture written for the church of Christ. I can give you numerous verses. I'll give you one. Romans fifteen four says, For whatever was written in former days, Zechariah, was written for what? Our instruction for the church's instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, not cynicism, hope. So Zechariah is here for us today that we might have hope. So we are meant to see uh, in the Old Testament, we're meant to see the inability of mankind to obey the law so that God would then send the branch, the son, to obey the law. For us that we might be clean and dwell in his place forever. That's what the Old Testament is all about. Which leads us to Zechariah chapter 4. Big idea here. Three points. Big idea. The spirit of God will overcome obstacles and complete the physical temple in Jerusalem. That's the big idea of chapter 4. God's spirit will overcome all obstacles and complete the physical temple in Jerusalem. So just keep that big idea as we go through these visions. All right. Here we go. Chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and one on the one on the right of the bowl, and, and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? Well, no, I don't. Anyway, (laughs) no, my Lord. That's what he says. Verse six. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power. Key verse here, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And then I said to him, what are the two, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I told you that these visions can be difficult to understand. So let's go to work, right? Let's go to work and try to understand them. Visions are given to picture future events. So in order to understand what is being said here, I've included a picture. Again, two in one sermon. This is amazing. I've included a picture so as to help us understand this vision of the things to come. There it is. So what we have here is a lampstand. okay? A lampstand all of gold. Now this is clearly a reference back to the lamp that was constructed of pure gold and placed in the temple in uh, Exodus 25. Same. It's got to be a reference to that, this light. Only this lampstand, a little odd, it's got a bowl on the top of it. And then there's seven lips that connect to seven lamps out of that bowl. And then there are two olive trees, one on either side of the lamp with the branches. We'll come to that. And then verse 12, there are two golden pipes that connect the olive trees to the bowl and pour oil uh, so as to then light the lamps. Okay. Zechariah does as we would all do. He looks at this and says, what is this? What's going on here? And the angel responds in verses 6 to 10. The word of the Lord is that Zerubbabel, who, by the way, is the governor of Judah at this time, he is going to finish the physical temple. That's what is meant by the top stone being laid on top. Verse 9 says that his hands will complete it. But notice, it won't get done by Zerubbabel's great might or great strength, nor by Israel's great might or great strength. It's going to happen by the Spirit of God. Thus the declaration when the capstone is placed on top of it. Grace! Grace! Because they recognize God did this. Right? And so, uh, the mention of the mountain there is a reference to all of the trouble that is in the way of completing this task of the temple. The Lord will make it plain. He'll take those mountains. Mountains are understood to be difficulties. They're hard to get over. He's going to, make them st- He's going to bring them down. He's going to smooth it out. The mountains should stand in the way of this project. God was going to do it. Not by might or by strength or by anyone other than God in his spirit working through his grace to complete it. Verse 10, we even find that this is all happening in such a way that even people who despise the day of small things will rejoice. In other words, even the cynic will rejoice. Because it'll be so great. But what does this have to do with that, right? What does this vision have to do with the trees, the branches, the lampstand, you ask? Well, let's start with the trees. From verses 11 to 14, Zechariah needs more clarity about the trees. And we learn that the trees have branches which represent Two anointed ones. Literally, the word there is sons of oil. Now we believe those two branches to be Joshua, the high priest, who we just read about in Zechariah 3, who we're going to read about again in Zechariah 6. That's one of the branches. And then Zerubbabel, who was just mentioned. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 tells us again he's the governor uh, kind of, of Judah. Now, they are the anointed ones, these two. The branches, and through them the oil which should be understood, oil should be understood to be the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when a king was anointed, there would be oil over him to represent the ministry of the Spirit. So through these two, the branches, the oil is going to go through these two, uh, as represented of the Spirit, through to Joshua and Zerubbabel, who, were, who will then work to light the lamps. And those lamps, we see in verse 10, are the seven eyes of the Lord as He looks upon the earth. So, In other words, like the presence of God looking over the earth. And so the vision is explaining how the Lord by his spirit will work through Zerubbabel and Joshua to overcome all the obstacles and finish the temple, which is the house of God. Or in a sentence, the vision is meant to explain how God's grace would complete the task, not anything else. That's the emphasis. Zerubbabel and Joshua were the means by which the spirit of God was going to use to bring about his might, to show off his glory, to finish the job. And we know from Ezra chapter six, Ezra chapter six, that the temple, in fact, is completed. They do it in about four years. The temple is completed. And we and we see in Ezra chapter six, verse 22, after they finished the temple, it says after they finished the temple, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful because it finished it. It happened. Zerubbabel and Joshua had to overcome many mountains, both internally and externally But by the spirit of God, it happened. God did make those mountains plains. He smoothed them out. They had to overcome enemies from without and enemies from within. But God did it. And look at verse nine of our passage, chapter four. All of this is done. So important. It's easier to run right over that. All of this was done so that you would know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. In other words, so that we would know that the word of God is true. That God is working, that He's doing something so that we would know that nothing can stop the power of the Spirit working through His people to accomplish His purposes. That's why He did all of this. That's why this passage is here. Restoration Church, we're going to see this in a moment. But God knew the whole time this newly constructed temple would not be the end of the story. He knew that when it was being constructed. He knew that it was only bricks. But He wanted it built so that It would be a stake in the ground that they, that even we, could look at it and say, while everything else seems so hard, God's enemies too strong, God's people too stubborn and lazy, God did it. He is doing it and He will do it. He will bring it to a completion. So this temple was meant to point to a greater temple. Christ Jesus, the Lord, the branch, the one that would secure for us on the cross clean clothes so that the devil would shut up. The one that by His atoning sacrifice would make us, His body, the temple. Y'all remember this? Actually, we get to Ephesians in a minute, but look at at 1 Corinthians 3.16. This is in the New Testament. After Jesus Christ, the branch, the one that we'll think about in a minute, builds a greater temple that this temple was pointing to in Zechariah 4. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul does, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit now dwells within you? And so, beloved, if God could anoint two guys to build a building that he knew was nothing more than a signpost in order to make this point. How much more might he empower you and I to build for him something better, something more lasting than a physical temple? See, I think if all of us were being honest, I think many of us would see ourselves in chapter four, verse 10. I think all of us would see in ourselves this despising of even small things. We so often despise even the day of small things. We're so often disappointed. And so we grow cynical. We're cynical. We lack confidence. We lack hope. We lack belief that God could do something. As Christians, we can be so small minded. We expect little and therefore we try little because we despise even the small things. Therefore we rejoice little, we hope little. But beloved God has spoken uh, this passage to us in Zechariah that we may know. That we may know that the Lord of hosts has been sent. That the temple, the temple was verification of God's word, of the fact that it's real, that it's true, that it's full of hope, more powerful than any mountain that may come in our way. And this, again, is what we learn from Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty two. Do you all remember that? Just a few months ago, chapter two, verse twenty two in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. You see that how it all kind of comes together? God's grace overcame the mountain of sin that stood against us to save us, to make peace with us. And our salvation, guys, our salvation is proof that nothing can stop the Lord's spirit, the Lord's grace moving through the world to accomplish his promises of peace and restoration. It's evidence of that, that the physical, the, the building of that temple in Zechariah four all the way to the building of the temple, his church, his people, is evidence. It's proof of the fact that God can overcome anything. And so I ask you, Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Or will you go on despising even the days of small things? Do we believe that Christ quieted the accusations of the devil and made peace with us? And moved into our hearts so that we would shine? Or is our faith just some nice religion that we use as a crutch to get by in a hard world? Which is it? Are we going to be like the rest of the world and live in doubt? Live in hopelessness? Live in mediocrity? Are we just going to be cynical about the world? Or are we going to believe that the Spirit of God is big enough to accomplish far more than we can ask or imagine? Which is it? It can't be both, guys. Last weekend, uh, we were in North Carolina at the celebration of our church's 10-year anniversary of sending us out. So 10 years ago, North Wake Church and Wake Forest sent us out. And we went in there and had a good time of just remembering old times. And I I spent time there in my former city with my former pastors uh, in the church that I used to worship in. And as I did so, I was reminded of a man that used to hope more. He used to be more courageous, to be more hopeful, to be less cynical about what God could do. I was reminded of a man that used to be more courageous about what God could do. And as I look around here today, at this church, I can say that that dream, that prayer of a church, of a kind of temple, where the presence of God would dwell. I can say that that praiser, that courageous step resulted in the fact that the evidence of God's word is true. You are evidence of the fact that God still is building his temple. The Lord has sent his word to us. You're evidence of that. He has done something and he is doing something. This church pictures that the spirit is stronger than the biggest army. There's nothing they can do to stop us. Against the greatest of odds, God can level mountains and make the greatest cynic rejoice and even say, as it says here, grace, grace, God did it. And so I'm going to fight cynicism in a cynical world. I hope you'll join me. I'm going to choose to believe God's word, that he's doing something. I'm going to say more often to myself and to others, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm going to be more courageous, more hopeful in building others up in Christ. I'm going to stop telling myself, which I do so often. Oh, they're, too far, they're too far from Christ. It'll never work. It'll never happen. I'm going to stop telling myself when I look at that marriage and go, it'll never get better. I'm going to stop telling myself to, to others that I minister to, they'll never get over porn. I'm going to stop saying those kinds of things to myself. I'm going to stop trying to be so small-minded. And I'm going to try. I'm going to make an effort to live in the Spirit of Christ that more and more mountains in our lives together might be leveled for the glory of Christ and the good of His church. Zechariah 4 is meant to point us to that reality. I'm going to try to stop living so much in fear because this God that redeemed me and redeemed you might go out and then... We can picture that he's able to overcome all those mountains. Now there's more to say here, and we will in just a moment, but for now we need to turn to Zechariah 5. Because here we get some hope for mountains that seem to persist. Because we can this sounds hopeful, right? But then life hits us. More mountains come and they don't seem to level out. They don't seem to be made plain. When we get struck down, persecuted, disappointed, when that mountain seems to remain a mountain, we rehearse the promises of Zechariah five. Big idea here. The Lord brings worldwide justice to wickedness. The Lord brings worldwide justice to wickedness. Take a look. Chapter five, verse one. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered. I see a flying scroll. It's length. It's. Is 20 cubits and it's width 10 cubits. That's about 30 by 15, about the size of a billboard. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who uh, for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on the one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, Hosts, and it shall enter the house of a thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what is this that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land, their sin in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its open. Then I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket?" And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Chapter six. And again, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, four chariots come coming out from between two mountains. This is the eighth and final vision. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. Meant to connote their hardness. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white one goes after them, The da- and the dappled ones go toward the south country. And when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me. Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So again, we have the final three visions here. So we get the sixth vision. Remember, there's we have already seen one, sixth vision uh, in verses four. Sorry, verses one to four of chapter five, you've got this giant billboard that acts as a curse to all who steal and those who swear falsely by the name of the Lord in the land inside the land of Israel. The Lord was going to punish these people. Verse four says that he's going to consume their houses. And why, you might ask, these two particular sins, why is God bringing judgment on these two particular sins? Where stealing is the seventh of the Ten Commandments and swearing falsely by the name of the Lord is the third of the Ten Commandments. So many scholars believe that these two commands represent the two tables of the Ten Commandments. In other words, they are representing all of the Ten Commandments. Could be. The seventh vision, verses 5 and 11, is a woman in a basket. She represents wickedness in the land. Wickedness is, is picked up and carried away to Shinar, where there is a house that is being prepared for the basket of For wickedness to sit on. So we have a place here. We have a place where wickedness would live. What might this be? Well, we have every reason to believe that this is referencing hell. Life outside of the land. Life away from God. Judgment away from God. And we know that not only because hell is where wickedness comes to live. But also the land of Shinar that's referenced there is where the that was where the tower of Babel was located from Genesis 11. This is the same place. And this is also happens to be square inside of Babylon and Babylon, we know, is frequently referred to in the Bible as a representative name for all of God's enemies. And so what we have happening here is wickedness is exiled out of the promised land, just like Adam and Eve, just like the Jews of old in judgment. They are carried east to live apart from God and God's people. And then you get the eighth and final vision for this section, chapter six, one to eight, four horses patrolling the earth. Note the reference in verse three to the strength of those horses. That's referencing the strength of God. And verse eight in that passage is key. Behold, those who go towards the north country, have set my spirit at rest in the north country. You guys remember this? This should, this should sound a little familiar. Chapter 2, verse 6. We know that the north country, once again, is referencing Babylon. And as we just said, Babylon is understood to be representative of the enemies of God, or more simply, hell. You can see this even many years later. Just think about it this way. Guys, Back at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 18, verse 21, they're still talking about Babylon as representative. John writes that Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. In fact, this chapter in Revelation teaches exactly the same thing that's being taught right here in Zechariah 6, 1 to 8. Namely, that justice, after justice or after punishment is given to Babylon, to the enemies of God, as a result, God's spirit will then be at rest. In other words, justice has been satisfied to all wickedness in all the earth from the land in Judah all the way to the ends of the earth. God sees it all. He deals with it all. Which shows us, doesn't it, by the way, that God is a global God. He's not a tribal deity. He sees all and he will bring justice to all the earth. God makes that so clear. And that's what these three visions are all about. The Lord starting with the land and moving out to the whole earth to bring justice, to bring punishment to all wickedness. And guys, isn't this what the whole world longs for? Isn't it? Doesn't everybody want to see wickedness taken care of? Don't we all want to see liars and stealers and wicked people dealt with? Don't we all want that? Well, that's exactly what the Lord is promising here in these passages. Worldwide justice. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor. He's frequently preaching for the minor prophets because he understands these notions. This instinct within the entire world to see worldwide justice for evil reveals to us all that there is a God. And that he means to have justice. He means to have the same thing that we all want justice for evildoers. That's that instinct in you being answered. But we have to ask that pesky question again. While we want justice to be served to evildoers around the world, do we want justice to be served to us? Of course we want Hitler and Mussolini and Pol Pot and Kim Jong-un and the KKK and other terrorist organizations. Of course we want them to be taken care of. But friends, this text reveals to us something even more. It reveals that wickedness goes further than that. It goes all the way down to those that steal. Ever stolen something? And those that swear falsely by the name of the Lord. This is even more condemning. I mean, do you know anyone that takes the name of Christ and yet does not, in fact, love Christ? So therefore, they're swearing falsely. I mean, do you know anyone like that? That claim to love God and yet don't actually love God as exemplified by the fact that they don't live a holy life. They're not interested in living it. They just want to claim God but not actually live a holy life. Remember that haunting teaching. Maybe the most haunting teaching in all the Bible. From Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day. This is the day of judgment that Zechariah is talking about on that day. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Jesus is describing the same people in the vision of Zechariah 5. Those who take the name of the Lord falsely. They will be carried to the land of Shinar. They will be exiled. They will not know the peaceful habitations of the new Jerusalem because they swore by the name of the Lord falsely, not truthfully. They weren't actually in Christ. And so while we might rejoice that God will bring worldwide justice to evildoers, and we should. Our joy gets checked when we slow down to consider that we may be in the basket being carried to Shinar. The angels may have patrolled us. We may be stand to be exiled from God's place. And so the instinct for worldwide justice is there because God placed it within us. And he did so so as to point every one of us to the reality that we might stand to receive punishment. Revelation 21.8 is crystal clear. It says there that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's crystal clear. So how do we get relief? How do we stay in the new Jerusalem? or How do we get to the new Jerusalem and not go off to Shinar? Well, that's what the rest of Zechariah 6 is going to tell us. We've seen so far that God will, by the power of his might, complete that physical temple so as to point us to a greater temple. We've seen that God will have worldwide justice. And now thirdly and finally, we see in chapter 6, verse 9 to 15, big idea here, the branch, the priest king will build a forever temple. The branch, the priest king, will build a forever temple. Look at these final verses. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jadiah and him, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And here it is again. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So I want you to notice now, guys, there's a bit of a change. Now we're moving on from the visions. Now Zechariah Zechariah has to go do something. Note the urgency there in verse 10. Take these guys in the same day. So what is happening here is the Lord is moving the eyes of the people beyond Zerubbabel's day and Zerubbabel and Joshua's temple to another temple that will be built by the branch. You can see that in verse 12. He, the branch, shall build a temple. And we've already seen from chapter 4, right, that Zerubbabel is going to finish a temple. But we see another temple here. But this branch is going to build a better temple. And we've met this branch before, haven't we? Met him back in Zechariah chapter 3. We know by the way that he's prophesied of in both Isaiah and Jeremiah before even the exile. But before we discuss that branch, we need to see that the Lord wants, uh, we see what the Lord wants to do with this silver and gold. There's some, there's some symbolism happening here we need to pay attention to. We need to see what the Lord wants with that silver and gold from these recently returned exiles. It's going to turn that, into, uh, turn that silver gold into a crown. Now, think about this, guys. Surely there would have been gold and silver already in the land that they could have used. It's already existing there. But by using the recently returned silver and gold from exile and putting it into use that same day, the Lord was saying, I'm going to take the wealth that existed in the nations in exile as is evidenced by the fact we can see it walking in that same day. And I'm going to bring it in and I'm going to make something out of it. I'm going to make something out of the silver and gold of the nations. I'm going to make the wealth of the nations as a crown for the branch. So just as Joshua as the high priest, he's the one that's sitting down here in Zechariah chapter six, just as Joshua as the high priest was a symbol back in chapter three, verse eight and go back and read that. Joshua was a symbol back then. So he is a symbol here. Joshua is pointing to someone else. He's pointing to this branch, the crown of silver and gold is placed on his head and eventually it is taken off his head placed in the temple to illustrate the branch was going to go from his place bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne in the presence of God. So what you have here guys is a priest that will have a crown that will have royal honor sit down connoting by the way the finishing of his work and rule on his throne in the presence of God. And we see there's now a council of peace between the two offices of priest and king in this mysterious figure. There's a council of peace, meaning the two are no longer separate, but now they're going to become one. See, these actions are here to symbolize that the branch will be a royal king, get this, and a priest, adorned with the wealth of the nations, and he will finish a greater temple in the presence of God. (laughs) And verse 15, we find that there will be those that are far off that will come and help to build this greater temple that this branch is going to build. And given the echoes of this passage back to chapter 2, we believe that those that are far off are the same people that will help the branch in this work, that will help this priest king build this temple. We believe that this is the many nations that God said He would bring to Himself and be their God. So let me pull the shadows off and shine the light directly on this mysterious figure. The book of John was written some 500 years after Zechariah. And in the book of John we read that there was one that had life and light. And his light, like those lamps, his light, like those lamps, shines in the darkness and the darkness we learn in John 1 could not overcome him. He even says in John 15, this one that came, he called himself the vine, the branch. And we know this light to be Jesus the Christ. In chapter 2 of John, we see Jesus go into, catch this, I I had to laugh out loud, just the Lord having fun with us. Jesus walks in John 2, he walks into the very same place, that temple that Zechariah and Zerubbabel built. 500 years later, walks in there. And when he walks into that temple, he sees that they've made a mess of the temple again. People were literally in the temple treating it like a shopping mall, profiting off of God and his word for themselves. Once again, they're tending to their own paneled houses. And so Jesus understandably gets very upset. The religious leaders of the day show up to him and they say, who the heck do you think you are, buddy, for getting upset about all this? And Jesus says famously in John 2, 19, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up." Now we've seen from Zechariah such a claim seems ludicrous. It took at least four, five, six years to build that one that they built. We know it took long, but more than that, from the first one. And the Jews, of course, knows this, but John gives us the inside scoop. John two, 2 twenty one to twenty two. Right after that, he says he was speaking, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Where therefore he was raised from the dead. By the way, three days later, after his crucifixion, his disciples remembered, it says, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is amazing. Justice had been prophesied some 500 years in advance with amazing specificity. Jesus Christ was the greater Joshua, the greater high priest. He was the king that bore royal honor. He was and is the branch. He lived a sinless life as he hung on that cross to atone for sins. What did he say? It is finished. So just as Zechariah told us in Zechariah 3 that he would take away sin in one day. Just as Zechariah told us that he would build a temple and sit down in the presence of God, his heavenly father at his right hand. Just as Jesus said that he would build it up in three days. So he did. And so just as we now understand, as we have already rehearsed this morning, we who are in Christ, we are his body. We are the temple. We are the building that he is building. Among the nations, adorning his head with that crown. We trust the sacrifice of Christ as our great high priest to atone for sins. That's what priests do. Priests represent man to God. That's why Joshua the high priest was representative. And we trust Christ the royal king who rules from his throne. Jesus is our master because we know that we are unable to follow his commands. We know that about ourselves. Even look down there in chapter 6 verse 15 and note that it says, and this shall come to pass. And then you get those incredibly hard words to read. That incredibly hard word to read If. If, 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 you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, this stuff will come to pass. You'll see this next week, but just look over there now. Chapter seven, look at verse 12. They don't do it. The text there says in verse 12, their hearts are diamond hard and so are ours. God always knew that there needed to be a greater priest that would offer a greater sacrifice That could atone for our sins. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Jesus as the great high priest. God also always knew that there needed to be a greater king. Who would rule over us. Because we are unable to rule over ourselves. You heard Berkeley pray for that. And so in love he sent his son to do for us. What we could not do for ourselves. And because he did. Now we the nations can come out of exile. Into the new Jerusalem. And adorn Christ the priest king. Who sits on his throne. Ruling the nations. Ruling the world. Now we can come and be the temple. And say as they did in Zerubbabel's day. How did all this happen? Grace. Grace. God did it. He overcame the mountain of my sin in Christ. He's made it plain. In Christ he has done the impossible. And because he did. Because Christ is the cornerstone of a new building and a lasting temple, He then could employ us, the church, to go out and continue building it up until He returns. Which is why He said what He said after He resurrected from the dead. When He said, all authority has been given to me, King, on heaven and earth. Therefore, go and build the temple. Go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you. And He can be with us because He's the temple. We're the temple. He's in us. I live in you as you go out and build. And so, beloved, build. Build the temple. Build the church. Plant churches. Plant this one. Spread the gospel. Build it up. And know, Jesus tells us, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. No mountain, as we have learned, can stand in the way of this temple because this temple is Christ, the branch himself, and no weapon formed against him will stand. Nothing can stop his church. Go check out persecuted countries. Every single one of them, the church is doing better there than it is here. Every enemy will be carried away to Shinar. Every friend, every son or daughter of Christ will be brought into the new Jerusalem where we will enjoy his counsel of peace forever. And back here into Zechariah, we see again why the Lord commands Zechariah, verse fifteen, chapter six. The manifestation of these promises was given so that you would know that the Lord of Hosts has sent me to you. Do you, do you, do you hear this rep- repetition? So God's doing all this, and He's telling all this beforehand, so that we would know that God's word is not a fable; it's true happening it is happening so guys that's exactly why we have the Lord's Supper because we forget he gave us this just like God gave the prophecy to Zechariah he gave us this meal to remember he has done it and he will do it and nothing can stop him so we take remembering refreshing giving ourselves hope to overcome cynicism and to go out into the world and build the temple for the glory of Christ it's why he's given it to us and so I ask you beloved what is keeping you from making the disciples making disciples of all nations. What's keeping you from doing that? What is keeping you from believing that God levels mountains, destroys diamond hard hearts in order to make them His own? You might get rejected. So what? You stand to inherit an eternal kingdom. Don't you believe? Don't you believe that you are the temple? Don't you believe that He is building up that temple through you? Through us. Don't you believe His promises? Of course it's hard. Of course it's hard. The whole symbol of our faith is a cross. Christ promised us that it would be hard. But we have hope. The whole world doesn't. We do. We have reason to keep going. Romans says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Not being cynical. So that the power of the Holy Spirit... You may abound in hope, power of the Spirit. So now the oil of the olive trees, the Spirit of God runs through our veins. And now He intends to build His temple through the church, through us. He intends to have the wealth of the nations at the foot of His throne. And from His strength, not our own, not our own, it is our part to not tend to our paneled houses, but to get out there and work for the glory of Christ, to toil, to suffer, that Christ, the branch, the royal priest, king, may soon have his reward. And soon enough, soon enough, we will be with him in the new Jerusalem. The temple will be built. That temple that's built without hands will be in it. and We'll be glad that we gave our all for the work of making disciples for the glory of Christ. And so, beloved, don't be a cynic. Be hopeful. Believe God makes mountains into plains. He still does. This meal represents that. He did it with me. He did it with you. And I don't know about you, but my heart is rock hard, just like those other disciples. And He's done it with me. He can do it with you. He can do it with somebody else. Look to your priest king, seated on the throne, as he builds his church, and press into the fields. Lean upon His strength and not your own. Of course you can't do it. You know, much people ask me from time to time, Nathan, how do you get up there and preach every, every week in front of all those people? It's simple. It's really simple. I'm incredibly aware of the fact that I can't do anything. My hope is here to do something there. He's a good king. He's a priest king. His work is finished and he will come again and he will exile all those that are not his to Shinar and he will bring the rest of us in. But until he does, may we find us in the fields building his temple, not in our paneled houses. He's given us every reason to believe that he's doing it. Every reason to believe that he can and that he will. And even if it doesn't seem like it, trust the fact that he will have his justice in his day and his time. Let's pray and ask him for help. Oh, priest king, branch as you are seated now hearing our prayers we rejoice that you have come and that in 3 days you built a new temple and you are building it again through us oh what a privilege we cry with zerubbabel grace grace forgive us for the ways in which we do not believe you forgive us for the ways in which we don't see that you can take mountains make mountains into plains Remind us of such things and cause us to believe, to be hopeful. And for those that have been trusting in the wrong things, not trusting in the Spirit of Christ to save them, may they believe today. Come to faith and escape the land of Shinar and come into the new Jerusalem by faith in Christ. Oh God, give us hopefulness. Give us diligence, we pray in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.